Alrighty, so if you have a Bible tonight, if you would turn to Second uh, Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7. Well, we're going to look at a relatively familiar passage here. Second Chronicles 7, verses 11 to 16. And it says in Second Chronicles 7, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he prosperously affected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. And if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, then if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God promises then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And let's pray. Father, I just I just ask you, Lord, that you'll have mercy on us here and that your presence will come uh, in our midst and you'll help me to speak your word clearly and with an anointing. And I just ask you'll open everyone's hearts to receive what you have to say. And we just do that. We just stand before you and sit before you, Lord, and, and just ask that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So I recently just uh, was talking to one of the young men here at church uh, and he was asking me, like, when certain Old Testament scriptures were written. And I told him, you know, there's a difference between, I don't know if you know this, but there's the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible would have been around even in the day of Jesus. And so the order of the books of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is different than the order of our books um, in English. Uh, and the point I'm making was, First and Second Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible was placed last. Now, and that, and that makes a difference. There's a reason for that. In our Bible, the Chronicles is placed in what's, it's grouped in what's known as the historical writings. So you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. And the problem sort of with that is, is that Chronicles, a lot of times in people's minds or whatever, it tends to just kind of get washed out. In other words, it just seems like, well, we just read all this in Kings, and here we are reading it again, and it just seems to be basically a repeat. But the point I want to make is there is a major theological difference between Kings and Chronicles and their purpose and what the authors are trying to they're, they're really quite a bit different if you really paid attention to reading them. Because Kings was written to the Jews that were in exile. So Nebuchadnezzar came in and they, he, he uh, destroyed Jerusalem, took the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah into, into exile. And it was written to them. Israel was basically no longer in their land. And it was written to let them know. First and second Kings was written to let them know why they had been punished. Because there they are in exile wondering why has this happened to us? Because they're saying we're God's people. And if the God that Moses told us about is good and all powerful, how has his chosen city, Jerusalem, his chosen city and his holy temple been destroyed? And what about this line of kings that he promised David? Where's that going to come from now? That's all been wiped out. And so kings, 
First and second Kings, it answers those questions because what it tells him is God is indeed good and he is indeed all powerful and he is the only true God. It's not a matter of that. And he himself, it's telling him he's orchestrated what's taken place here with this destruction of Jerusalem. And the only reason for the captivity it's letting those people know is it was their own fault. It was their sins and their repeated failure to repent when God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and gave them a long time to get things right. That's Kings. But Chronicles has a totally different purpose because Chronicles wasn't written to the people when they were in exile. Chronicles was written to the ones that had come back. It's written to the ones that had come back and they're struggling They're struggling to make ends meet spiritually and physically because they've come back and they had certain expectations when they came back to the land. And those expectations are not being met. Certain expectations that we think aren't being met. Does that sound familiar sometimes? Right. (laughs) So the ones that were returning, they knew about the new covenant that Jeremiah had prophesied in Ezekiel, and they're expecting that to be there, but they're like, well, who's the king? Where's the king that was promised that would be raised up to sit on David's throne? And where's the prosperity? Where's these new hearts and new lives? And where's this joy that was promised? Where's all this stuff at? And so by the time Chronicles was written, basically, from the time they'd come back to the time Chronicles was written, 200 years had passed. And things just don't look that good for them. And in their mind, those Hebrews that returned, they were convinced, maybe not all of them, probably not all of them, but a lot of them were convinced that God had gone back on his promises. Hadn't been exactly what they said. You know, we, they gave up a lot to leave Babylon, some of them. And they're coming back here and like, this isn't just what we expected, right? And the thing is, they'd forgotten the word that Jeremiah had given them. Jeremiah had given them this word, Daryl, I'm going to be preaching some of Daryl's sermon again, because in some respects it needs to be. That was a good message. But Jeremiah had given him this word, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. He says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And it appears to them that God had nothing but evil thoughts towards them. This is just the way things are turning out. They're experiencing evil circumstances. But God went on to say this to Jeremiah. Because this is the thoughts I had towards you, and this is what will happen. He says, when you come back, then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me. He says, I will hearken unto you. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And he told him, he says, I will turn away your captivity. That was his promise. So these people here... They'd forgotten that, though, apparently, right? I mean, that's, a, that's just a great promise. That Miss Faith Hood gave me a little candle because I did her mom's funeral, and I got that up on my mantle with that promise right there. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful promise. But the reason Chronicles is written is these people are discouraged. In a sense, they need a shot in the arm. They need some encouragement. And I'm saying we do, too. If you don't know it, I'm letting you know it. We need a shot in the arm. We need a little encouragement, right? And that's the reason Chronicles was written, to give the people that returned to the land, they're facing a steep uphill climb in a lot of respects. They really are. And why? You know, they're they're facing this uh, incline, this, this problems that are coming their way. Nothing seems to be going right. 
And he's trying to give them through Chronicles. And if you really look at it and think about it, and hopefully you'll think about it tonight, it's written to give them hope. And it's hope based on this. Because any book you read in the Bible, who is the big, the main character always? It's God and his character. And Chronicles is written to say, hey, look, you're back here. Things may not look great at the moment, but you can have hope. And why? We just preached a message two Sundays ago or three, whatever. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And that's why you can have hope. And he desires to bless his people. He talked about that Sunday, yearns to bless his children. And that is the message of Chronicles. Second Chronicles 16. That's what this verse that we all know, Second Chronicles 16, 9, is telling us. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To do what? To show himself strong on the behalf. But there is a condition on the end. Now, it's not one we can't meet. Now, King James says to those whose heart is perfect towards him. And that makes you think, well, I'm not perfect, so I guess I'm not qualified. No, that's not what that means by perfect. It means whose heart is his. You've just given yourself. That doesn't mean you might not stumble here and there. We all do, like Sister Jane told us Sunday, right? And that's what 1 John tells us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. (laughs) I mean, we offend in many ways, don't we? But that's what Chronicles, and that's what God's heart is. He's looking to bless his people. That's what he wants to do, whose hearts are towards him. So Chronicles is written to let God's people know he'll be faithful to fulfill his promise of restoration. We talked about that Sunday, and that's the title of my message, God's Plan of Restoration. That'll happen, he's telling. It's all through the book. of, And this is really what Daryl was getting at when he taught his message. We need to hear it again, I guess, because this is what God put on my heart for tonight. But we need to seek him. The condition is what we just read in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. You need to seek him in prayer and humility and obedience. And that's not just the message of Chronicles, though. Isn't that the message of the entire Bible? Genesis to Revelation. But I'd like to look first, briefly, just briefly, at the beginning of this chapter 7. So like I said, remember, it's books written to encourage the discouraged Jews. And it's written for them to be encouraged to go back to worshiping the Lord with all of their hearts. That's what he's after. And so the beginning of chapter 7 gives us the Lord's response to Solomon's prayer. So Solomon in chapter 6, the chapter before this, he had dedicated this temple that he had built. And the building of the temple, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to backtrack a few chapters here and get up to this, okay? But he completed the chapter in Second Chronicles 4, or completed the chapter. <laughs> completed the temple in chapter 4. In chapter 5, what we have going on there is the Ark of the Covenant is brought into this completed temple, and it's done the right way by the Levites carrying it. And I mean, it is a major big deal that that takes place. I mean, that's what that whole chapter's about. And the Ark of the Covenant, we know that from back when we studied Joshua and right on through, even Samuel, the the people in the surrounding areas were afraid of that Ark because that's God's presence. When that thing's around, we're in trouble if they're fighting against us. That's where his 
presence is manifested on the earth where that ark is. And so the priests bring the ark into the holies of holies. And I'm telling you, a praise session began. If you go back and read that, it talks about the Levites are dressed in white linen. And it says they're playing cymbals and psalteries and harps. And then it says there are not just James Martin up here when he played his trumpet. It says there were 120 priests with trumpets and they began blowing them and it says there that the voices of the singers they all began singing and the voice of the trumpets and the voice of the instruments it says they were all one and began to make one sound in praising and thanking the Lord for what he had done so if you would just go back there just turn back a page and look at second chronicles 5 at the very end of that verses 13 and 14 and look what happens when they do that Second Chronicles 5.13, it says, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, He is good for His mercy endures forever. And look what happened. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord had filled the house. And the presence and glory of God are falling on his people so heavy that they can't even stand up. Could you imagine that? And when did it happen? When did it happen? When they were all, it says, one, one accord, one voice, praising God for what? His goodness. And his mercy. And look, he's not just giving them. So he's not writing to people that saw this happen. He's writing to people that came back way after all this happened. And he's encouraging them. This is what God will do in your temple. They hadn't seen anything like that. But he's saying this is what God Almighty will do. And he's telling that to us too. That's what we can expect. It's an encouragement. We come together, lift up our voices in one accord, and God's presence will fill this house. I'm not saying we're going to have smoke, but I'm not saying we won't. <laughs> I mean, man, if he did it then and he's done other things down through the years, what's the, what would that be a big deal with God? I mean, I don't think so. So Solomon goes on in chapter 6, and he prays this prayer of dedication before all the people. Now look in chapter 6, look in verse 12, and it says, He stood, just get a picture of this, He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and upon it he stood... And then he kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread his hands forth, spread forth his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth, which keepeth covenant and shows mercy unto thy servants that do what? I mean, this is a common theme all through Chronicles. Worshiping God with all of your heart. And that's what he says. They that walk before thee with all their heart. You imagine that? There's Solomon up on that platform standing up and he gets on his knees lifting his hands up before the whole congregation. Humbling himself and praying before God Almighty. 
That had to be something to see. I would have liked to have seen that. And he goes on, I want to read the whole prayer. What he, what he basically does, though, he goes on and gives all these different instances and cases of Israel sinning and then turning to God in prayer. And then he says, he asked God, he says, when that happens, Lord, when we miss it, when we're not doing what we should and you send trouble and we come before you and we ask you to, will you to forgive us, will you please forgive us and will you please hear our prayer? So he asked God, he said, I just want you to see and listen. That's an expression that's used several times here in these few chapters to the prayer of his penitent children. Would you please do that? And if you look at the end of chapter six, you'll see God, what he says, or the end of his prayer, I'm sorry. And he says, now, my God, let I beseech thee, thine eyes be open and let thy ears be attentive unto the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed, and remember the mercies of David thy servant. And what was God's answer to Solomon's prayer request for him to show mercy. He's saying, will you show mercy and forgive your people when they sincerely seek you in this temple? God doesn't just quietly say, yes, Solomon, I'd be glad to do that. I will forgive. How does God answer him? Look what it says in chapter 7. Here is how God answers that prayer. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. This is the second time this has happened. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. That's how he answered. Fire falls, and that cloud, the glory of the Lord returns. And that is his supernatural approval. That is God giving his almighty divine nod, nod of approval. I mean, that's something else. And he does that several times in the Bible. Did you know that? Where fire falls on offerings. David sinned earlier in Chronicles. He numbered the people and God sent a pestilence in. People are dying left and right. And the angel of the Lord tells David, he says, I want you to go build an altar in the threshing floor of Ornan and offer sacrifices. And David did that. It says he offered burnt offerings and he offered peace offerings. And then he prayed. And God's answer to David in that case, when he, when after he had prayed, it said, fire fell down from heaven and consumed the offering. I'm sure Ornan saw that and David saw that. I mean, have you ever had a prayer answered like that? Man, I haven't. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Wow. I'd, I'd be like, let me go back to that place and do all my praying, you know, get those kind of answers. Well, I think David actually was scared. <laughs> but the fear of God in him. And we all know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? After Elijah, he drenched that sacrifice. He goes, I don't just want it to be a little bit wet. I want everybody to know here, this is God getting ready to perform something. It says he drenched that offering and the wood and everything else three times. And that's in the midst of a drought. And then he prayed this. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know. He, that's why God does these things. So people, we can know something. And what he says, he's that they may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. That's why he did it. So they could know that, that their hearts were turned back. And 
Boy, did God answer once again. The fire fell. I don't know what that would be like. Or man, that would just be incredible, is all I can say. I know what happened. Because the Bible says it did. And it says when the people saw that, it says they said they fell on their faces, wouldn't you? And it says they said the Lord, they didn't just say the Lord, He is God. They said the Lord, He is the God. They said it twice. He is the God. There is no other. <laughs> Baal's nothing. This went on for hours. We had to watch these guys jumping around, cutting themselves, and nothing happened. And Elijah prays, and bam, the fire falls from God Almighty. That's right. Amen. <laughs> I'd be on my face, too. And that's the response that we have here. So this fire falls, and this happened in front of all the people. They're seeing him pray. He gets done praying, and God answers. I mean, man, Solomon probably had to back off a little bit. He might have had his eyebrows singed. I don't know. But look what it says in verse 3. It says, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house. Oh, it says they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped. And here's what they did. Oh, they're just so thankful. God has approved everything that's happened. And they praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. And then it says they went on and they offered thousands and thousands of sacrifices. It's almost numerically impossible what the Bible says, how many sacrifices they offered. I think it would have had to have been seven an hour, 24 hours a day for a week. It's like numerically these guys are like, that doesn't even seem like it's possible. It was possible. I believe it happened. But man, oh man, fire falling from heaven. Wow. And his presence was there with them in a special way. The fire falls. So what's happening here? As the people are praising, God is manifesting his presence in a tangible way. And they can't help praising him for that. They're experiencing his presence. And they go home happy. Look in verse 10. Look what it says. After they offer all these sacrifices, it says on the three, and this went on for a while, and 20th day of the seventh month, he sent the people away into their tents. Solomon did. And here's how he sent them away. They weren't gloomy. They weren't downcast, where's God and all that. That's what he's trying to tell these chroniclers. If you'll just do what they did, you can have the same thing. You don't have to be downcast. And he's telling us that. But look what it says. They went away to their tents glad and merry in heart. Why? For the goodness that the Lord had shown unto David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. I'm saying that's why Chronicles is written wants to show us how God wants to show us how he wants to manifest himself in our midst. And when he does that, you know what he's saying to us? And we've had this happen many times here. He's saying, I approve of not just the words you're hearing. I approve of your response, how you're living, what you're doing. He's bringing in that personal approval of each one. And it's all being brought together. That's what it is. That's what he's after. You know, in Acts 4, it says the same thing. So we read here in chapter 7, they were all of one accord. The singers back in chapter 6, and here in chapter 7, they're all of one accord. And in Acts chapter 4, they get persecuted, get brought before the council. They come back, and it says that the people all gathered to pray, and they all gathered to pray in one accord. Now listen, God didn't answer by fire, but how did he answer then? By an earthquake. So listen. Whether it was by a fire or by an earthquake, I would take either one. 
I just wouldn't really be that picky, right? But that's the expectation we need to have, that God will manifest his presence in a dramatic way. Maybe not by fire, not by earthquakes, but as a brother told me yesterday, what we should be seeing, though, in the New Testament, what should we be seeing? His gifts operating here, shouldn't we? Amen. That's right. Amen. To meet our needs. <laughs> I mean, big time. Shouldn't we? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're pressing in, expect, expectation, praying in the Spirit, and we'll talk about some other things, we should be able to see that happen and expect that to happen, right? Amen. I think Spirit of the living God, like it happened there, fall afresh on me. Do what you have to do so that you can fill me so that I can be a blessing to others, not just for myself. Maybe that's part of the problem. We've got to want to be a blessing to others, and that's what will happen. So we need to know we've got his divine approval, just like they did, just like that's what Elijah said. Bring down your presence, bring down your fire, Lord, so that they can know that you turn their hearts towards you. Right. So we don't just need to limit, do we? We don't need to limit the accounts we read in the Bible to just staying in the Bible. Right. We can experience revival ourselves <laughs> individually and corporately. Right. Well, let me ask you. So what if moving on here? What if things are not the way they should be? So what if there's heaviness in your spirit? And I think all of us have had to deal with that, haven't we? Let's just be honest. Everybody, I won't even look to see you all shaking their head. But, or you're seeing defeat. Or you're struggling. No joy. No gifts. What do we do then? What's the answer? Look what it says in verses 12 and 13. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard thy prayer. I've chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. And he says, if, if what I just said, if I shut up heaven... And there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. In other words, he's saying, if I send chastisement, if I send, and listen, chastisement is not, not always because you've done something wrong. It can just be a training, a learning, but a lot of times that's generally what it is, right? If I send chastisement, no rain, the locusts are there, and pestilence, and who's the one that's done it? Who's the one that, read it, what, who says he did it there? God says, if I shut up heaven, or if I command the locusts, or if I send the pestilence, he's the one that's done it. And none of that stuff is a blessing, is it? I wouldn't say so. It's a sign that things aren't right when that's taking place. And God's trying to get his people's attention. And I'm sure, I'm sure they were praying for God to intervene and nothing's happening. So the Lord is saying in verse 13, if for whatever reason that is your experience, I'm saying for whatever reason, and it can take a lot of different forms. He just gives three forms here, doesn't it? It can take a lot of different forms. God's saying, if that's the case, listen, I'm going to give you the answer. Here's the answer to solve that problem. He's not leaving us there. He's not putting a period, is he? In verse 13, is that the end of the chapter? In the end of the chapter. So look what he says in verses 14 and 15. If that's the case, he says, well, then if my people, which are called by my name, will do this, they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. God says, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin 
and heal their land. And now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. And I'm saying right there, what we have right there in 2 Chronicles 7.14 is the template. It's the pattern. It's the paradigm that God has given us if things are not working right. When you know something's wrong, this is God's answer, right? It's an if-then proposition. He's saying if, things aren't going right, but if you meet these conditions, if you do these things, he says, then this will be the result. This is what I will do, saith the Lord. That's what God says. And let's see if it worked out in the rest of Chronicles. I'm saying this is the template. He doesn't just leave us with that. He goes on, the rest of Second Chronicles gives us examples of where that's exactly how God works every single time. And that's how we can say God is faithful. Whatever he said, if we do what he says, it will work out the way he says. That's the way it is. And, you know, Chronicles highlights the good kings for the most part, doesn't it? And it starts with Asa. No less than seven times in Second Chronicles chapters 14 to 15 does it say that Asa and Judah sought the Lord. No less than seven times. I counted them up. Might have been. I might have missed one. And here's the thing. They sought the Lord and God blessed all they did. What did we just read in 714? My people will humble themselves, pray and seek my face. Do that. Then God says, this is what I will do. And he did that for Asa. The last time it talks about them seeking the Lord, it says this. They entered into a covenant, an agreement to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart. There it is again. I'm saying it constantly talks about all their heart and seeking God. That's a constant theme throughout Chronicles. And with all their soul, and they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with all their whole desire. And he was found of them, it says, and the Lord gave them rest round about. They did what he said, the if, and he did the then. Does it every time. The same was true of Jehoshaphat. Amnon, Moab, and a multitude of others came against Judah. And it says this in 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat feared, and he set himself to seek the Lord, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. I'd say that follows the pattern that we just talked about. And Jehoshaphat's prayer, I want to look at that. If you would turn back to 2 Chronicles 20. We're going to look at a few things here in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 20. Look at his prayer. Sounds just like what we just read with Solomon. And here's what he prayed. He said, verse 3 is up where it said he feared and set himself to seek the Lord, proclaimed a fast. Verse 4, Judah gathered themselves to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah, and they came to seek the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat prays, and look what he says in verse 9. He says, if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and where? In thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction what does, what does he say will happen? 
then God will hear, the Lord will hear and do what? And he will help, is what it says. And look what he goes on to say in verse 12. And our God, and O our God, wilt thou now judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us, neither know we what to do. But he says, our eyes are upon thee. And I mean, that's when you're humbling yourself before God. You're saying, we're fasting, we're praying, we need help, we got trouble on our way, and we're looking to you because we have no might, we have no strength. And did he help them out? Oh boy, did he help them out. Helped them out through again, through their singing, and brought a supernatural deliverance to them. And then there's Hezekiah, another one. And look what it says about him. So if you would turn to chapter 31, we just looked at 20, look at 31 and look at the end of that chapter. We're not going to go through all of Hezekiah's life, but we know Sennacherib came against him and they didn't give in. They're saying, don't listen to your king. He's trying to deceive you. He's just setting you up, telling you to trust the Lord. The Lord and none of these other lords have helped them out. And this Lord's no different. Well, he found out otherwise, didn't he? Old Sennacherib. But here at the end of Hezekiah's life, look what it says. It's or not the end of his life, but after he had he had set things right, he'd cleaned up the temple, he'd had the Passover reinstituted, and it said, Thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, verse 20, 2 Chronicles 31, 20, and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. Verse 21, and in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments, to seek his God. It says he did it with all his heart. And what was the result? He prospered. There it is. It's working like every time. You plug it into the template. You plug into what God says, this is what I'll do. And it works every single time. And it even worked in for one of the most wicked men that ever walked this earth. Manasseh. So just turn back. Two more chapters. Chapter 33 is about King Manasseh. And I'm telling you, he was literally one of the most wicked people that ever walked this earth. So it doesn't matter how backslidden you've been, how wicked you are. You just don't think you're worthy. You're like, oh, God will never hear my prayer because of what I've done. Well, you aren't going to be able to stack yourself up very well against Manasseh. He's about as bad as it gets. Now, look what happens. He'd been taken away. It says the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but he he just... He's rebellious. I'm not going to listen to you. But they would not hearken. Wherefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, took Manasseh among the thorns, bound him with feathers, carried him to Babylon. Now, I would think at that point, if I didn't know the way the rest of the story went, it's all over for him. He'll never come back. He's carried away to Babylon. But look what happens when he was in affliction. What did he do? He besought the Lord his God. And where's that word? Humbled himself greatly. That means he fasted. Humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed. There's, there's another element. Prayed unto him and he was entreated of him. God was. Heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And guess what? When that happened, it says then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Wow, that follows the pattern that we read in 2 Chronicles 7.14 to a T. He humbled himself. Isn't that what it said about him? He prayed. Isn't that what we read in 2 Chronicles 7.14? 
Seek my face. That's what he's doing. And turn from his wicked ways. He wasn't the same king after that. In fact, God says, because you humbled yourself that way, he told Manasseh, I'm not going to bring all this evil that I promised in your day. It's going to come after your son, Josiah. I mean, man, oh man, that ought to give us hope, shouldn't it? There's no situation. If God will do that, he's even faithful to a wicked man, Manasseh. The last good king of Judah was Josiah. He sought the Lord despite all the idolatry of his father, Manasseh. He had to purge it all out. And the the temple had gotten in total disrepair. And so Josiah went about the business. We got to clean up the temple. We're going to rebuild the temple. And in the process of that, they found something that nobody had much interest in for a long time. And that's the law of God. And when that was read to Josiah and he heard what the law said, it says he tore his clothes and fasted. And God sent a prophetess to tell him this. So turn over to chapter 34 and look what she said to him. In verse 27, 2 Chronicles 34, 27, and it says, Because the prophetess speaking for God tells Josiah, Because your heart was tender, and you did humble thyself before God when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and you humbled thyself before me and did rend thy clothes and weep before me, God says, I have even heard thee, also saith the Lord God. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and you shall be gathered to the grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. And so they brought the word, king word again. But we just looked at, I don't know how many cases that was, that's five or whatever, five of these kings, five cases. Of that principle that we read in 2 Chronicles 7.14 being followed and every time, this is what we need to see without exception, God was faithful to do what he had promised. I would say study it for yourself. Take the time. It's good reading. Yeah, it's better than a lot of stuff we'd be reading now. And I'm saying it takes the mystery, doesn't it? Out of what, what things aren't going right for my life. Things don't seem to be right here, there and everywhere. I don't know what to do. There's the answer right there. God has given us the answer. It's not a mystery. He's not keeping us in suspense. He's not keeping us in the dark. It's the pattern throughout the entire Bible. So if you would go back to chapter 7, I want to look at that, specifically that promise of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And it starts off saying, if my people which are called by my name. And so his promise is directed towards whom? Those that know they are God's people. That's who it's direct, and he's calling them to repentance. So there's a lot of times you know, yeah, I know I'm God's child, but I know I'm not living like I should be, right? And that's what this is. This is a call to that. Things are happening to me. I'm being chastised as his child. The thing is, don't give up. That's what he's telling them. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. It's the call that God gave to the people in Revelation 2, the people of Ephesus. He tells them, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. He says, you've left your first love. Well, they were there at one time. And he's not telling them, you're not my people, right? He says, you loved me. Here's what, and this is what we need to hear. Because everybody starts off their salvation this way. They're zealous for the Lord. They want to put him first and all that. And then just slowly over time, or some people are up and down, they get back to and away from. But over time, eventually it gets to where we back off of our first love. You get saved, you just can't read your Bible enough, you can't, all those things we've heard a million times, I don't want to 
bore you with that again. It shouldn't bore you, but that is what happens. And God says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you've left your first love. Loved me above all else, the Lord would say at one time, but now it's different. So you're still, he told him, you all, you're real zealous for doctrine. You're real zealous for religious works and religious activities. But he's telling them this. And me and Greg have talked about this quite a bit. There's a difference between you can even read your Bible, you can say prayers, you can show up here, you can talk religious. There's a difference between that and your heart. God having your heart and you going before him. Don't we all know what that means? And that's what he's talking about here. He says, I've lost your heart. I've lost your affection for me. Not seeking me anymore like I'm the most important thing in your life because the Lord's saying other things are crowding me out. So there's a lot of things we let crowd out the Lord that aren't bad in and of themselves. But it's just when we're seeking those things first and not Him, it becomes a problem, doesn't it? A lot of things like that. A lot of snares out there in the world today. And so the Lord's answer to them was to remember Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen. Remember what it was like. Think about how you're like, I'd never want to be anywhere else than where I'm spending time with the Lord. I never want to not know that he's walking with me throughout the day. Never want to not experience any of that again, his presence, manifest presence. And yet we can get away from that. And then you start feeding on other things to where you're kind of losing your taste for that. And he's saying, remember, though, that's what the Lord tells him. Remember from whence you are fallen and Repent and do the first works, he says, or else. There's an or else there. I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And we tend to think that's just an idle threat. And I'm saying, look around. Look up north. There's a church that no longer exists. That they had the word. They had gifts. They had power manifested. And it's no longer there. So this isn't an idle threat. We need to take it seriously, don't we? (laughs) I mean, we really do. And so God begins by asking us, he says, if my people who are called by my name, and the question we have to get settled is, are we his? God would say, are you mine? And if so, are you seeking my face? Which is, like I said, more than attending church, listening to messages, saying prayers, but consciously living in the presence of the living God. I'm telling you, I'm preaching this to me. I'm not preaching this at him, I'm preaching it to me. But we need to let God speak to us tonight about our lives. And in that, though, I'm saying we need to let him give us the assurance that we are his. If my people, my people, he says, he's talking to my people that are called by my name. You may not be doing well, but you've got to know you're his. It's got to be that way. And the second thing he says, if they will humble themselves... Here's one thing I heard Derek Prince. I'll tell you, if you want to hear a great message, uh, he's got a, a, a message that I kind of didn't base this off of, but I listened to it. I thought, well, if it's pretty good, called Fasting Brings Restoration, because we're going to talk some about that. Great message. Don't, wouldn't recommend everything about Brother Prince, but that message there is great. He's got a lot of good things to say. Well, one thing he said is that we have to humble ourselves. God never does that for us. So, in a negative way, God told Pharaoh this in Exodus 10. He says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will, he says this to Pharaoh, how long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? 
you won't humble yourself. And in 2 Chronicles 34, in contrast to Pharaoh, we just read this about Josiah. He says, because thine heart was tender, and he says, you did, Josiah, you did humble yourself before God. And when you heard his words against this place, there's two con. So Pharaoh hears God's threatening him with judgment. Just says he hardens his heart, refuses to humble himself. Josiah hears the judgments coming. And God says, you had a tender heart and you humbled yourself is what he said. That's the point. We have to humble ourselves. Matthew 18, four, Jesus says, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom. Matthew 23, 12, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5 says, God resists the proud. Oh, you're going to get near him. He's resisting you, pushing you away if you're proud. But it says he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. But he says we've got to humble ourselves. And when when he's talking about that, when it's combined with prayer, that's just code language for fasting. And here's where everybody's like, I liked you up to this point. Liked you up to this point. But that's what he's talking about there. And that's what he's talking about in 2 Chronicles 7.14, I believe. My people will call by my name, will humble themselves fast. Psalm 35.13, David wrote, I humbled my soul with fasting. And my prayer returned into my own bosom. Psalm 69.10, he says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. Isaiah 58, 3 says, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you see not? Wherefore have we humbled our soul, and you take no notice? And I'm saying when you fast, there's a lot of things happen there. that it, It's a humbling experience in a lot of ways. And you come under attack in a lot of ways, and it just, it just has a humiliating, afflicting effect on you that is a good thing. And Paul says he was often in fasting. And that's not this because right before that, he said, well, there's a lot of times I just wasn't able to eat. But fasting is when you're abstaining from food, not just because you just don't have any money to buy anything. Right. It's because you're doing it. You're abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. That's what fasting is. And what I want to say, though, so we have to humble ourselves when he talks about humbling. He's talking about fasting. And I'm saying Fasting is the God-given means to restoration. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we're talking about tonight. And that's what he's telling them here in the Chronicles. And that's what all these people did to see God's power. You could go right on through Ezra, Asa, Jehoshaphat. They see trouble coming and they fast before the Lord and he answers. But if you would, we talked about this Sunday. If you would, if you can find Joel, turn to Joel chapter 1. I'm saying it's the God-appointed means of restoration, fasting. Joel chapter 1, and look what it says in verses 10 to 12. Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, it says, The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, and the oil languisheth. 
Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. How, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. And he says in verse 12, the vine is dried up and the fig languishes, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field, they're withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. And what he's describing there is what we had at the beginning of that Second Chronicles 13, the pestilence, right? Things aren't going good. We got a bleak situation Joel's describing here. It's desperate and it's hopeless. Everything is wasted and withered, he says, including the joy of the people. But God doesn't just leave it there. He gives the same remedy. I'm saying this is all through the Bible. He gives the same remedy here in Joel that he does in Second Chronicles 7. Because look down in verses 13 and 14. He says, Gird yourselves and lament ye priest, how ye ministers of the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Verse 14, sanctify ye a fast. Things aren't going good. Things are not like they ought to be. What does he say? What's the answer? What does he say? Humble yourselves. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Are we willing to do that? Are we really willing to do that? That's his answer, though. Isn't it? Isn't that what they're needing there in Joel 2? Joel 1? Things have been devastated. The devil's come in, wiped them out. And he's saying, here's what you need to do. You want to get things back right? That's what his answer is, isn't it? I think that's what it is. He repeats the same instructions if you turn over to chapter 2. And look what he says there in verses, beginning in verse 12. He says, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. That sounds like Chronicles. And with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God. You do those things. Why should you do that? Here's the incentive. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. We talked about that Sunday. And he repent and repents him of the evil. And who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. And wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? He's saying if the situation is that bad that everybody needs to stop what they're doing, even the honeymooners, you got to stop your honeymooner. It's that serious. And you need to get before the Lord and fast and cry out. I don't know that it seems to be that way, that it's taken that seriously. But when the people did do that, when they did take things that seriously, look what it says. There's the then. That was the if, verses 12 through 17. If people will do that, if my people, God says, will do that, turn to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning. Then there's the then of verse 18. Then Will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people? 
Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. You'll be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. And then he says over in verse 25, here we're saying fasting is the path to restoration. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall eat in plenty. Be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and none else in my people shall never be ashamed. So he's saying that's the key right there. There it is. Whether it's individually or in a corporate way, you want to have your joy restored. You want to see God move in your life again. It's a matter of rending your heart, fasting, and seeking Him. That's the principle. That's the pattern. And man, is it quiet. It's quiet right in here with me. It's not that it's so much that it's quiet with you all, but it is quiet. So we'll go on and we'll look at Isaiah 58. He says the same thing there. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. And it says in Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 3, they have a complaint. They said, why have we fasted, say they, and you don't see? Why have we afflicted our soul and you don't take apparently any knowledge? You don't seem to care. And God says this because, well, when you're fasting in the day of your fast, he says, you find pleasure and exact all of your labors. In other words, you're not really fasting for the right motives or with your whole heart. In verse 4, he says, behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. He says, is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? He says, is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that you bring the poor that are cast out to my, thy house? And when you see the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own fields? In other words, you're not fasting for your own gain, your own pleasure. You're not acting like you're fasting, but you're off, you know, going to the horse races, is what he's saying. You're doing it. You're fasting for other people to see their oppression broken, to see the captives go free, to break the yoke, and to help others out. He's saying that's the motive. But look what he says. If you'll do that, if you'll properly fast, look what it says. Here's the then again, saying that fasting is the way to restoration. Seeking the Lord. He says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. Thy health, you need health. Thy health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. And then shall thou call and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If you take away the, from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. Verse 11, it says, And the Lord, he'll guide you continually. Satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. You'll raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths 
to dwell in. <laughs> and God says, if you'll do that, he's saying, this your health will break forth. These are all the things that will be a benefit. Fasting is never fun, is it? It's never fun. But he's saying, this will be the fruit of it. It'll be the restoration of everything that you need, everything that you want. So Nehemiah, you remember back in Nehemiah when he first heard the news of the state of Jerusalem, the remnant came back. He heard, they said, yeah, they're back there, but they're in great affliction. They're suffering reproach. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. And what was his response? I mean, he knew that God had promised to bring them back. Does he just be like, oh, well, God's faithful. It's all going to happen. That isn't what he said, is it? That's not what he said. It says, it came to pass, Nehemiah says, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And he basically went on to remind the Lord in his prayer what Moses has said, that if thy people... All these things happen to thy people and they turn and repent and come back to me. Then I'll bring them back and I'll restore their captivity. And when he prayed that and fasted, God heard his cry in chapter one because the walls were built. They were. And so back in Second Chronicles 7, it's not just the humbling. It's not just praying, seeking God's face, but it's also there has to be a turning from wicked ways. Sins need to be repented of. And so we know this when Jonah pronounced God's judgment on Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The king of Nineveh heard that word from Jonah, the prophet, and he wasn't like Pharaoh because it again says that he, the king of Nineveh, humbled himself. He took off his robe, it says. He dressed in sackcloth, sat in ashes, and issued this proclamation. He said, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. And so there again, we have Nineveh doing what God says to do in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Judgment's being pronounced, and it says they humbled themselves, they prayed, they sought his face, and they turned from their wicked ways. And it goes on to say God is faithful. He saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. So, what I'm saying is, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, if we meet the conditions, talked about him, humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our sins, then he will do these things. He will forgive, he'll hear our prayers, and he'll heal. And that's the pattern all the way from Old to New Testament. It's the same thing if you want to read it on your own in James chapter 4. Same thing in James chapter 4. So the point tonight is, if you're still, anybody's still here, he wants to restore our joy, our healing, our faith. He's given us the way. And I'd say that's what I want to experience. I'm listening to myself. Nobody else is. And I want to sense God's manifest presence in my life. And I know it'll work. I'm not wondering if it'll work. So that can happen in an individual life. You don't have to wait, as I've said before, you don't have to wait for the church. It's up to us. We have to be the ones to humble ourselves. So Jesus didn't say, if you fast, did he? 
It's supposed to be part of the Christian life. When you fast, every Christian should be fasting. And I mean, they have, if you're a Jew, you were going to at least fast one day out of the year, the day of Yom Kippur. Read Leviticus 16. Every Jew, if they wanted to partake of the forgiveness of Leviticus 16, the whole nation, they still do it up to this day as far as I know. They fast and they abstain from all food and water for that day. And that's the way it was because they had to humble themselves. God saying, you need to afflict yourself, humble yourself to receive my forgiveness and cleansing. I don't know what would happen here uh, if we said, you know, as a church, we're going to fast on a certain day. I don't know if people would do that or not. But we should be able to do that. There's a lot of churches I know. David Wilkerson's church would do that frequently. But I'll tell you, personally, I'm saying we need to see that we got a serious situation here, and I don't know that people really do. But I'm telling you we do. we got a serious situation here, and I'm saying I think if we're serious about being a member of this church and wanting to see it go on, I would recommend you fast tomorrow, but I'm not going to require it of anybody and whatever. I would like to see people fast tomorrow and show up for prayer meeting. But if you can't do that for whatever your reason is, then fast sometime between now and Sunday. And maybe we can expect God to meet us here on Sunday. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? I think it would be. All righty, well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us and that you've made it clear to us, Lord, when things aren't right in our lives, they're not working out like they should, that you've given us the pattern that if we'll just get back to putting you first, Lord, and fast and seek your face and pray and humble ourselves and anything you deal with us, Lord, that we're willing to remove from our lives, that we can get things right with you and have a clear conscience before you, that, that then you'll send your blessings down. And that's just the pattern. You've been faithful to do that all through the Bible because that's how you are. And so I just thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for making that clear. And thank you for speaking to us tonight. And we just do that in Jesus' name. All right, if you all want to stand to your feet.